Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great privilege it is to enter into your presence. You are holy and righteous, blameless. You are our Creator King and powerful. And God, when we enter your presence, we are made aware of how unworthy we are to enter into it. So God, we confess to you now our sins. Our sins that we committed this past week, our lack of trust, our anxiety, our fear. We confess our greed, our covetedness, our lust. We confess our lack of contentment, our lack of trust. God, we thank you that even though we are sinners, you have loved us in Christ. So, Father, we thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to to die in our place and to cleanse us from our sins. We ask that you cleanse us now in our confession. Father, we pray for those in our congregation who are struggling this morning. We continue to lift up our brother Ken Tedder. We thank you so much for his tenacity and how he has fought this cancer. We pray, Lord, that you continue to strengthen his, his faith and strengthen his body as he uh, continues to hold out uh, hope for healing. Father, we continue to pray for the rest of our, those in our congregation who are struggling. We lift up Jerry Green. Lord, we lift up Melissa Palou this morning. We pray that you continue to have your hand uh, upon her. Father, we pray for all of those in our congregation who have unspoken needs and requests. Uh, Father, we pray that you would just meet them in your own, in your own hand. Uh, Father, we do pray for our nation, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would help unite our nation, Father. Uh, we pray that you would give wisdom to voters in this coming election, Father. Uh, we pray that you would allow your will to be done uh, in our country. God, we pray that you would just bless our land with, with righteousness and with holiness, Father. And God, we even pray for our own town. We pray so much for Rock Hill that the gospel would go forth. God, uh, we, we pray for John Chambers this morning at Remedy Church. God, we pray that you would bless that congregation as they uh, continue to seek your will. We pray that as the word goes forth this morning that you would form those people into your likeness. And God, now we, we humble ourselves now before your holy word. Uh, I pray for the people before us, Lord. And God, I pray that you would soften their hearts that you would allow them to be receptive to the Holy Spirit of God as you speak through your word. God, I pray that as the word of God is declared and announced and preached, God, that your Holy Spirit would take the word and attend it to the hearts of your people. God, you know what everyone is dealing with this morning. God, the joys and the pain, the, 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 the trials, God, uh, the suffering. God, you know the hearts of your people. So, Father, I pray that you would do what only you can that you would take your word and you would plant it deep in our hearts. Father, I pray that the, the word that is spoken is honoring to you, that it is Christ glorifying, that as we lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw all men unto yourself. So, Father, I pray that as a passage we have probably heard before, you, you would give us new eyes to see it in a, in a new light. We uh, humble ourselves before your word. We ask that you would form us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Glencairn Gardens is one of my favorite places in Rock Hill. 
I'm sure it's many of yours. Uh, before we moved to Rock Hill, uh, when Ellen and I were living in Washington, D.C., or whether we were living in, in Somerton, uh, we would always make, make a point to, to go to Glencairn Gardens. You know, when we came up for a visit, there, there was a time when we'd walk around and just be at Glencairn Gardens. Uh, Glencairn is just a beautiful uh, place. Landscape lawns, blooming flowers, a wide variety of trees that you see when you walk around the gardens. Uh, it was donated, uh, it started as the backyard of David and Hazel Bigger in 1928. And it has blossomed, according to the city of Rock Hill website, an 11-acre acre paradise. Uh, I've spent many days sitting on the grass, having picnics with my kids, watching them run around, listening to music during Come See Me. And in those moments, it kind of seems like all is right with the world. Glen Cairns is one of those places where all seems right with the world. And we see that even in this morning's text. After God had created his world with his word, all was right. So we see in Genesis 1.31, it said, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God created a garden paradise. This morning, we're going to look at what was life like in the garden. If, if life is so different that we experience today than life in the garden, then why should we study it? Why should we take a, a morning, two mornings, and study what life in the garden? Well, I, I commend to you that we should study the garden because it shows us how life was supposed to be. And it shows us how life will be. In the age to come. Now remember, as we looked at last week, Moses wrote Genesis to a people who were fearful. They were most likely wandering in the, in, in the desert during this time after, being, uh, after leaving Egypt and, 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 and about to go into the promised land and experience uh, the, the battle of foreign nations. Well, while they, that while they were wandering, they, they did experience suffering. Now God provided for them every day they were in the wilderness. He provided food from heaven, water from rocks. At the end of 40 years, their sandals were not worn out. And yet, as they were wandering and, and, and dealing with the, the wilderness, they, they suffered. They experienced suffering. And this people, Israel, was about to go into the land of Canaan and face the nations there. Canaan was a world of chaos. And they desperately needed order and true community. So what the garden does here, what God does through a picture of the garden, is he gives us a picture, a window that we can kind of look into of how life was like and how life should be. And we all have those garden moments in our life, don't we? Those times, whether it's a minute, an hour, or a day, when you kind of stop back and say, this was a beautiful day. This was, this was great. And it almost seems as everything was, was right. Well, I think God gives us those garden moments, those, those, those glimpses of, of, of how life is, is supposed to be, whether it's a great meal with a, with a friend or seeing a sunset. Whatever those garden moments are in your life, those moments are designed to carry you through those moments of suffering. I have a friend back in 
New Jersey, he would always say, there's three kind of people in the world. Those who are going into a problem, those who are in a problem, and those who are coming out of a problem. We are all going to face suffering and problems in our world. So these moments, these garden moments in our life is God's way to, to, to get our hearts desiring and longing for paradise. So I pray your eyes will be lifted off whatever current trials you're dealing with this morning. That you will look to the perfect paradise that God has prepared for his people. And as we look there, we will be sustained down here. So there's just two points this morning. I had three and it was going to be beautiful, but I have two. And it's going to be beautiful. First one is the garden community. The garden community. Genesis 2-4 begins with this announcement of the generations of the heavens and the earth. This follows the the, the Toledot formula we looked at last week. So the way that it's written, one scene here is Genesis 2-4 all the way to end end of Genesis chapter 3. So life in the garden is both the the blessing of chapter 2 and the fall of chapter 3. The reason why Genesis 2 is so important is that throughout the Bible, biblical figures like Jesus and Paul anchor their theology, anchor their worldview of how they should look at life back here in Genesis chapter 2. The more and more I do ministry, the more and more I read the Bible, the more and more I realize that Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3 are the most foundational chapters of our faith. If you don't understand that Genesis chapter 2, you will not have a Christian worldview. One of the greatest things that is lacking in in our nation, lacking among the people of God in America, is a a well-formed worldview. Viewing the world the way God wants us to, through His Word. So I pray that you will see these chapters as valuable. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 again. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The central figure in Genesis chapter 2 is the Lord God. Uh, You remember in Genesis chapter 1 that the the title for God was God, Elohim. That is the creator God. Well, here it's very unique with them linking the Lord, Yahweh, and God, Lord God. Uh, in In your Bibles, you probably see Lord in all caps. That was the name that God gave himself in Exodus chapter 3. He is the Lord. He is the I am. So what, what, what God is saying here, through, what Moses is saying through the inspired spirit, is that God is both the creator and their God, their covenant God. God is a promise-keeping God that he gave to fearful and struggling 
Israel. So throughout this chapter, what you see is God being portrayed in many human terms. He's explained in a way that we can understand. So he's, he's looked at as the master builder, the, the skilled craftsman who, who forms the man and the beast out of the dust and the ground and, and molds and shapes woman from the, the rib of Adam's side. After the Lord God forms the man from the dust of the ground, he, he breathes life into the man. So look again in verse 7. Man became a living creature. The Bible provides the most glorious hope for our physical bodies. Uh, many uh, Greek thinkers have kind of infiltrated a lot of Christian thought, and they, they want us to think that the body is bad and that the soul is good. Uh, it's, it's Platonic thought that kind of shapes us to think that the body that God gave us is bad, but what's inside the soul is good. And that is nowhere in the Christian Bible. God created us as embodied souls, souls that have a body. So when we depart from this world, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, we wait for that day when God takes our soul and brings it back with our bodies. That's the way life is meant to be. God breathed life into his body. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says this, Breathe is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was giving as well as making and self-giving at that. The breath of God shows the personal relationship that God had with man. God begins and sustains all the lives of his people. Now when you read this text, especially in the Hebrew, there's a lot of play on words. It's almost as if the, that Moses wanted you to see how luxurious, how abundant this garden truly was. God lavished blessings upon his people. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted, remember who, who, who planted this garden? The Lord. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. These trees were beautiful. You've had those moments when you've looked at a tree and you have been awestruck because of its size and because of its color. You know, uh, the greens, Jerry and Ellen love to go to Vermont in the, in the fall, right? Go to the, the, the family reunion. Why? Because you drive through the mountains and, and, and up over Vermont, you see the, the colors just bursting off the trees. It is beautiful. So think about trees everywhere with vibrant colors, full of leaves. And then you see the, the, these trees who, are, who are, have fruit off these trees. Apples and oranges and bananas, right? There's all this luscious food. There, there's an abundance of trees, an abundance of food. Now the reason why that's important is you have to remember what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 3. The evil one is going to creep in and he's going to try to make Adam and Eve believe that God has withheld something good from them. So rather than looking at all the the blessings, every tree beautiful to the eye and every tree ready for food, 
the serpent makes Adam and Eve think about what God did not give them. And I wonder how many times that happens to us. God has given you so much. He has blessed you with so many things. And yet so often we are tempted to look at what God has not given us. I mean, just just think right now, what has God given us this morning? He's given us friends gathered here today. He's given us the strength to be here. He's given us the breath in our lungs. He's given us heat so that we are warm from outside. He's given us clothes, praise God, right? He's given us life. He's given us so many things. And yet I, I wonder how many of you came in this morning questioning God's goodness to you because of something that you don't have. Whether that's the affection of, of a loved one, maybe the, the, the forgiveness of a friend, financial needs. God gave abundant provision for his people. Abundant. So God places two trees in the middle of the garden. Now these two trees we see in verse 9 are different. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wisely notes that symbolically, the middle of Adam's world was not himself, but life, the very presence of God. And his limitation as a creature is in the middle of his existence, not on the edge. Right there in the midst of the garden, God gave Adam a tree, which he had to get life from. Because at the center of of our life is God. Not man. God is the center of life. You exist not primarily for your own happiness, but for the glory of God. We will return to the the significance of these trees here in a moment. But first, I just want you to see how God continues to show the beauty of this creation. Look at verses 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to the water in the garden. There it divided the camp, became four rivers. And the name of the first is Pishon, to the, to the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there was gold. And the gold that, of that land is good. Bedalam and Onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, are, are around today. The other two, we don't know where they are. It would be best speculation to figure out uh, and make a guess on where they were. We know that wherever Israel was, that it was to the east. We do know that. Uh, God gave the names to Israel for a reason. Israel may have known these, where these rivers were, but we don't have an approximate place of the garden. I think it's more important for us to just to see and to, to marvel at the beauty of of life created by the rivers. You know that all life, dating back from way back, uh, there's always a bustling number of, of life around waterways. So if you go to a, a, a new land, the first thing you do is you try to find a water source. Because you know near a water source you can, you can sustain life. And God planted a beautiful and an abundant garden. Now the garden community here that God creates is a perfect one. It's beautiful, full of trees, food for food in season, and rivers that flow through the garden, nourishing everything. And although the passage highlights the physical beauty, 
and the sustenance that that provided in this garden, the best feature, the best feature of this garden is that this is where God met his people. The best thing about life is never God's gifts. The best thing in life are never God's gifts. It is God himself. God is the greatest thing about life. It's him that we are after. He is not only their creator, God. He is the Lord God. He is their God. That's what he wanted to remind them. The garden is where God met his people. And this theme about God's presence and God meeting his people is woven throughout Israel's story. So when they were wandering in the wilderness, where did God meet his people? At the tabernacle. When they came into the land, they they built a temple where God would meet with his people in the Holy of Holies. And when the Lord God himself, Jesus Christ, came, the Bible says that he was the word made flesh. And literally, he tabernacled among us. He became with us our Emmanuel. And then when he he died and rose again, he sent his spirit. So now the spirit of God dwells in the midst of his people. First Corinthians chapter three says that God's presence is here right now. God delights to meet with his people. Do we delight to meet with God? Do we wake up each day hungry to, to pray and be in his presence? Do we wake up each day ready to to open our word and see what God is going to speak to us by the power of His Holy Spirit? Do we delight on Sunday morning to wake up and can't wait to gather with God's people, to, to sing God's praises so that we can be in His presence? I pray that our church, that our community, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, we would be like David in Psalm 27 when he says this, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. All the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire of him in his holy temple. The greatest thing about the garden community was the perfect community between God and man. The greatest thing about our future paradise is being in the presence of God. Now, we are going to have a great day. What a great day of rejoicing it's going to be when we are in God's presence. We're going to. Fellowship with the, with the saints who have gone before us. We're going to have a, a wonderful time of rejoicing. And we should be happy and rejoice that we are going to see those who died in Christ before us. Amen and amen. And yet, it will be far greater. It will be far greater when we will see our Savior's face. We will touch the holes in his hands. We'll be able to feel the, the pierced side. And he looks at us and he says, well done. Well done, my good 
and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Oh, I can't wait to go to heaven because I can't wait to see Jesus. I pray that would be our heart. That's the garden community. And when you, when you see that in, in Genesis 2, there should be a longing in us to want to go there, to be back where, where life is all perfect and, and right. But the second thing we see here, not only the garden community, but the garden commands. God gives rules in the garden. We see that in, in 6 through, in 15 through 18, 17. Verse 15. God's word says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There's two commands that I want to focus on this morning that I see here. First, God placed man in the garden to work and keep it. God established work as part of his good creation. We see this even in the, in the cultural mandate. This kind of echoes back to Genesis 1.28, when God's word says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man was placed in the garden to exercise dominion or rule over the land. So the, the name that we, we know as the first man, Adam, comes from the, the same root word as ground. Adam, Adamah, right? This, this idea of, of ground, the very nature, God and, uh, um, or Adam and the ground were connected. So if you notice back in, in 2.5, there was no springing up on the ground. And one of the reasons why there was no uh, vegetation on the ground was that there had been no, no rain, but also the man was not in the garden. The man was not there to till or to work the ground. So the word work there in, in Genesis 2.15 really means to till the soil or to serve and to worship. Do you know that when you go to work on Monday morning, you're going to worship? Now sometimes we think, well, I can't wait to go to worship on Sunday. But you know that when you wake up tomorrow morning, when the, when the alarm clock's goes off at 5.45 and you wake up tired and groggy and you get yourself ready, you are going to worship. You are going to put on display that you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We should be known as a people of God who go to work to worship. That's what the Scriptures teach. Colossians 3, 24 and 25. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Do you view your job as worship or drudgery? God created you for work. You ever, you ever read through the book of Proverbs? We spent a lot of time there this summer. But if you notice in the book of Proverbs, God is very harsh when it comes to laziness and sloth. 
God hates laziness and sloth. Why? Because you were created to work. You were created in his image to exercise dominion over this world. And when we are lazy, we are denying who we were created to be. And yet, how much of our society, how much of our worldly system promotes laziness? We turn on the TV and we sit. (laughs) We open the computer and we sit. Right? There's this, this training of our bodies and our minds to be lazy. That's just the world that we have to deal with. One of the things I've told my college students again and again is that this generation is probably going to be dealing a lot more with the struggle of going towards entertainment. You know, when, when many of you grew up, the, the, the entertainment was the church, right? You may not have had a TV in your house, but you had the church. And this is where you came for fellowship and community. Well, now entertainment is everywhere. Everything is, is, is kind of geared at us and specifically young people, to be consumers, to to take in. And yet God created us to work and to exercise dominion over this world. We're called to work and to work for God's glory and honor. So one thing I would encourage those of you who are older, maybe spend an afternoon with some of our young folks and tell them how you worked, how you got up at 6 o'clock in the morning and you worked two jobs until 10 o'clock at night. Tell them about your, your experience. And those of you who are younger, listen. Listen to those stories. I have been blessed so much in my life by the people of Park Baptist Church by just sitting and listening. Man, what a blessing in this congregation, in this room. Some of the hardest working men and women are sitting in the pews in front of us. Well, the second command, first one is to work. The second one is, to, is found in Genesis 2.16. This is the only place in the entire book of Genesis where there is a command when the Lord God is the subject. Look what Genesis 2.16 says. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden. Let me stop there. There's two aspects of this command. There's the positive and there's the negative. The positive is what? The Lord God said, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Again, it's reminding us of the abundant provision that God has provided for us. Sometimes we think about only the negative commands of God. I don't want to follow Jesus because Jesus is a killjoy. All these rules of the Christian faith. No, God says what? You can do all this. Just don't do these things that are going to hurt you. That's the, that's the, that's the sense of the passage. So the positive is this abundance. The the negative aspect we have to to see in light of that positive one. It said the Lord God commanded the man saying that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The limitation that God gave Adam and Eve was One tree. Everything! One tree. And not having that one tree caused them to disobey and rebel against God. Their hearts went after that one tree. 
the knowledge of good and evil really probably is a, is a place where they would receive divine wisdom. We, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet they went after wisdom in their own way without God's hand. As one scholar says, out of God's goodness and mercy, he informs the man that the consequence of disobedience is death. What is at stake is whether he will choose to trust God's words. Isn't that the choice we have every Sunday? Will you trust God's words? They're very clear. Will we obey or will we disobey? John Calvin says, We now understand what is meant by abstaining from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, namely that Adam might not, in attempting one thing or another, rely upon his own wisdom, but that cleaving to God alone, he might become wise only by his obedience. Well, sadly, we know that Adam did not cleave to God alone, but desiring to be wise in his own eyes, he became disobedient. As I said before, the, the Hebrew here is just full of wordplays. I've enjoyed so much just studying the text because the language is so rich. Uh, Adam was taken from the ground to work the ground. The language is very similar. Adam was given responsibility to work or to literally to, to guard. He was called to guard the land. And did Adam guard the land when the, the serpent came slithering in? No. So because he didn't guard the land, Genesis 3, 23, it says that the cherubim guarded Adam from getting into the land. So the very job that Adam got was to guard. He actually had that job against himself. Someone had to guard him from getting to the tree of life. Now Adam was placed in the garden to work and to guard the land, while the second Adam, the Lord Jesus was placed in a different garden to work and to guard the entrance into the promised land. God placed Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane to guard the lives of his people. And while Jesus was in the garden, Jesus said to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, and the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The same word. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Adam was placed in the garden to work and to guard the land, and he failed. Jesus was placed in the garden to work and to guard the souls of his people. And he most gloriously succeeded. He said, I finished the work you gave me to do. And while he hung on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. The work of God is finished. And God proved that he accepted that sacrifice by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, so that now if you put your faith in Christ, He will give you that land. He will give you that inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, not because of your work, because of the work of Christ done on your behalf. This is glorious. This is our God. 
who said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus Christ has gone to prepare a place for his people. Israel received Genesis as they were on their way into the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. This promise that a land was was going to be made for them. We see these allusions in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 65 about this, this land that is going to be beautiful, this new heavens and the new earth. And we see Jesus saying that I've gone to prepare that place for you. So we read in Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Think of the garden. Think of its beauty. Think of its abundance. Think that that was a reminder to, to a people who were suffering that there's something glorious coming. There's a promise that I will get you back to paradise. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. I don't know the pain or the suffering or the trials that you are going through. But what I do know is this, is that when we look to the paradise, to the the place that God has prepared for us through his son, there should be a longing in our hearts to say, I desire to be with Christ but to live as Christ, to die as gain. We think of that place to sustain us in this place. God will sustain you. God will sustain you. Whatever you're dealing with today, God will sustain you because he has gone to prepare a place for you. These garden moments that we experience in our life are just a reminder, just a reminder, there are better days ahead. There are better days days ahead. I pray that you would have garden moments. I pray that you would have glorious, happy days. Not only to give you joy, but to carry you through those times of trial as we await that day when we get to see our Savior face to face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the garden. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ into the garden. We thank you that Jesus Christ is now gone ahead of us to glory, to prepare a place for us. God, I pray that we would long for that place. And as our, as our hearts are filled thinking about the paradise that you have purchased for us through your son's blood, that we would be sustained during our trials here on earth. And how we handle our trials would result in the praise, honor, and glory of your holy name. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.